you who um, might be visiting for the first time, this is not the way I dress to church on Sundays. Okay, all right, today I really need your help, kids, okay, because we got to kind of breeze through all the parts that we've learned so far so we could get to the main one that we're going to get to today. Got it? So, someone tell me what the first part of the complete armor of God is. Raise your hand. Let me see those hands. <gasps> Libby? Yeah. What's the first one? Belt of truth, that's right. And I put it on and I gird myself with it because it's what keeps it all together. Okay? The truth of who God is, what He's done for us through Jesus, and who we are because of all that is what everyone sees and says, hmm, that's the truth she lives by. Okay? What's the second one? Logan? breastplate of righteousness. And who gives us that righteousness? Jesus. Okay. So you see, Jesus, he is always right. Okay. And when we are right before God, we can stand with Jesus' righteousness. And Jesus gives us that. So he gives us, it's like a jersey that you wear for a team. When you got that jersey on, okay, that's the jersey that Jesus gives us. Okay, my eye is twitching. I think it's allergies, but it keeps twitching. Okay, but the righteousness. What's the third one? Who knows the third one? Hope. Sandals for the gospel of peace. And you know what? Uh, it's the sandals where every day when God tells me, get up, Duhi, we gotta go. I put on those sandals, and everywhere I go, whether it's school, whether it's grocery store with mom and dad, wherever you go, you bring peace with you. You don't bring war. You, your shoes, you take, it takes you places so you could proclaim the peace of Jesus to people. Okay? Now, what was last week's? Anybody remember? The, yes, Penny? Shield of faith. Yeah. And what does the shield of faith help you to do? It helps you to what? Yeah, Libby? Protect yourself from arrows. And so it means that it helps you to move forward. Faith gives you what is needed so you can move forward so that you don't have to cower and hide and be afraid. Okay? It's the thing that allows you to move forward. Now, today, we're going to learn the fifth one. Anybody know what it is? By any chance, you just know what it is? Yes, Logan? Helmet of salvation. I'm gonna put on my helmet of salvation. All right, there's my helmet. It protects the cheekbones and the jaw in case someone wants to hit me with a sword. Okay. Now, uh, what does the helmet protect? Yes, Libby? The head. Do you know the athletes wear helmets? Do you know why they wear helmets? Yeah, to protect the head. Especially people who play uh, football, hockey, baseball. You know, if you have one of those balls hit you, 
Yeah, it could be pretty bad. Okay? So what is it protecting in your head? Yes, Penny? Your brain. Okay? It protects your brain. Sometimes, um, especially when I was young, we had a basement. And I hate going down that basement because it would be dark and you would have to go down the stairs. And I used to think all kinds of scary things lived down there. Right? Or I remember, you know, someone told me this really scary story about when you sit on the toilet, a hand comes up, a red hand comes up to grab you or something. And so I would have such a hard time sitting on the toilet because I'd be like, oh! But, you know, all those things are not true. They're in your head, right? They're in your head. So, when an athlete protects their head, okay, it's because the head, the brain, controls the rest of you. It tells you to eat, tells you to sleep, it tells you to fight. It tells you to raise your hand, okay? So an athlete, when their head is damaged, their career is over. So it's very important to protect your head. It is actually the computer for your body, right? And when your, com when your computer is not working, then you're going to have some problems. Another thing is what I love about the head is your eyes are on your head, okay? And how you see things is so important. How you see things is so important. And so seeing helps you to believe things, and seeing helps you to understand things. So it is very important to protect your head. There is a psalm in the Bible. Do you remember King David? King David? Before he became king, right, he was running. He was running because someone was chasing him, okay? Saul was chasing him. And when Saul was chasing him, you know, there was like an opportunity for David to actually hurt or kill Saul, but he didn't. You see, Saul was his enemy, but then David knew God. God, you are my salvation. You are the one who's going to save me. You're going to protect my mind so that I don't get scared. I'm not going to be trying to run away, and I'm not going to hurt somebody. Because, God, you protect my mind. You're my salvation, and when I trust in you, God, you put me up on a rock, and my head is high above my enemies. They can't reach my head. They can't mess with my mind, okay? So you put on your helmet, and I want all of you to put on your helmet, especially when you get scared, because the one who saves is God, all right? So I want us to pray. Can you open them? Shut them. Put your helmet of salvation on. Open them, shut them. We're saved because Jesus already won. Open them, shut them. Give your hands a clap. Open them, shut them. Fold them in your laps. Let's pray.
God, help us to remember that you have given us what we need. So help us to do our part by putting on the truth, by remembering that you give us your righteousness. Help us to always remember that you, wherever we go, we take your good news with us. And that we don't need to fear or hide because you give us faith to move forward. And Lord, we know that you are always renewing and transforming our minds. Your protect, you are our protector of our minds. And in it, Lord, you give us our salvation. So we ask that you help us to do our part because you have not left us abandoned or alone, but have given all we need. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So kids, if you could gather your things and you're going to meet me out there. Right? Um, if you are... Uh, three and younger, you may please follow us also. Our scripture reading for today is Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 to 11. Listen now to the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. This is the word of the Lord.
The Lord be with you. Thanks. Let's pray together. God, we thank you again uh, for your word. And now, um, as we hear your word, um, help us to hear with our hearts, to be open to what you would say to us, to find our comfort and delight in you. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. On January 1st of every year, some people, commendably, commit themselves to reading through the whole Bible in a year. Perhaps some of you have made that New Year's resolution. If so, you probably breezed through the book of Genesis and the first half of Exodus. But then after all the exciting stories, the narratives, of Genesis and the first half of Exodus, after it culminates in the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 of Exodus, you may have found yourself getting stuck. You find yourself struggling to continue because you have to slog through what seems like an interminable series of arcane and irrelevant rules and regulations. And then if you make it through that, you find yourself really bogged down by these detailed blueprints about the construction of the tabernacle and the utensils and all these other things related to the worship service. So it's often somewhere between Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus chapter 30 that many well-intentioned readers of the Bible abandon their hopes of reading through the entire Bible. Many people, and perhaps some of you I suspect, never reached our reading today in chapter 31 of Exodus. Now the particular details in these chapters regarding the construction of the various articles needed for worship service may be of little or of no interest to us. But that these instructions are preserved tells us something about the importance of worship in the formation of the identity of the people of Israel. I remind you that the Israelites at this point had been slaves for 400 years in the land of Egypt. As our acquaintance with the history of this country has taught us, it's no small thing to overcome generational chains of slavery and to forge a new identity. For the Israelites, fundamental to that identity is the worship of God, the one God, the Holy One of Israel, the great I am, and the one who has brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And it's because worship is so vital that such detailed instructions for every aspect of worship are recorded and pre preserved for us in the scriptures. So considering how important worship is, we might expect that it would be Moses or maybe Aaron, the chief priest, who would be given the task of overseeing this work. But instead, God says, verse 2, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. God chose Bezalel. He has called him by name. 
To be called by name is to belong. It's what Pastor Doe has been teaching us about the meaning of the belt of truth. In the same way that a soldier's belt signifies to whom the soldier belonged, so God's calling us by name tells us that we belong to him. Isaiah 43, for example, says that thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Because God calls, our belonging is always by grace. Remember that only the Levites were allowed to set up and to clean up and to lead worship. You had to be born into that service. But those who are called to the construction of the tabernacle and all of the other elements used in worship are chosen by God regardless of their lineage. Not only is Bezalel from the tribe of Judah, but his co-worker Ohaliab is from the tribe of Dan. Neither are from the expected tribe of Levi because God calls them by name. God's choosing is not limited by anyone's personal history or family connections. It rests purely on the grace of God. In fact, not only does God call Bezalel by name, but God says, verse three, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. It's an impressive list of skills of devising, working, cutting, and carving that is given by grace. And it's not just a set of technical skills. There is also the endowment of ability, or more ordinarily this word is translated as wisdom and intelligence. This is someone given a comprehensive set of skills and experiences to oversee the entire construction of the space that would be used for the worship of God. It's someone that God has enabled to work in every craft. He is gifted as a master craftsman, a polymath. I would say someone on the same level as a Leonardo da Vinci. And notice that the pattern here is what we see repeatedly in the scriptures. Those whom God calls, God also empowers. God never calls someone because they are the most qualified. Rather, God calls, and then those who answer to that, in obedience to that call, are enabled by the Spirit of God. And again, this is a sign of God's grace. And notice that along with Abezalel, God says, and behold, I have appointed with him Ohaliab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all men ability that they may make all that I've commanded you. The Hebrew here is literally in the hearts of all of the wise hearted, I have put wisdom. So again, it's not just technical skills and it's not just one man who has been gifted, but an entire guild of artisans and craftsmen that God calls and empowers for the work of preparing the space and the materials for worship. This, I think, this gifting is a sign, is a foreshadowing of what will happen after Pentecost when the Spirit of God will fill the church and enable the people of God 
to be the new temple of God. As the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, do, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In the time of Moses, the spirit was given to the ones who would build the tabernacle for worship. And in the same way, after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit likewise dwells in all of us in the church through faith so that we too may not only build the temple, the church of God, but be the church of Jesus Christ. Well, I want to make uh, two related reflections with you this morning uh, regarding this passage. The first is, our reading tells us that artistic ability is a spiritual gift. Artistic ability is a spiritual gift. Typically, when we think about spiritual gifts, you might think of um, you know, speaking in tongues or gifts of healing or prophecy, things like that. You might also think about those who are spiritually gifted, right? Those who are prayer warriors or bold evangelists or um, pioneering missionaries. That's not wrong. But what's really noteworthy about Bezalel is not only does God call him by name, but God also fills him with his spirit. Now, as Christians, I know that we're used to talking about the idea of being filled with the spirit. Throughout the New Testament, this is common, that being filled with the spirit happens again and again. John the baptizer and both of his parents are said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And beginning with Pentecost, we see that the disciples again and again are said to be filled with the Spirit. And in the letter to the Ephesians, we are admonished, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled again and again with the Spirit. However, in the Old Testament, someone being filled with the Spirit of God is actually quite rare. The Spirit of God, you might remember, first appears in Genesis 1, where we learn that in creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This Spirit of God, then, is said to be upon a few people, like the judge Jephthah, the Levite Jehaziel, and the um, diviner Balaam. The Spirit of God is also said to have rushed upon Samson as well as King David and to have fallen upon the prophet Ezekiel and to have clothed the priest of Zechariah. And Pharaoh acknowledged that the Spirit of God or a Spirit of God must be upon Joseph because of his ability to interpret dreams and for his uh, planning of these uh, economic plans. And we might also add Joshua to this list because when Moses laid his hands on him, we are told that Joshua was full of the spirit of wisdom. It might just be semantics, and these are all just different ways of expressing or describing the same presence of the spirit of God in someone's life. But I think it's still noteworthy that this expression of being filled with the spirit of God only appears twice. The only other time that it appears in the Old Testament is in the prophet Micah, who self-proclaimed, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his 
transgressions and to Israel, his sin. So Bezalel in our reading today is unique in that God himself says, I will fill him with the spirit of God. I think it's pretty amazing that the first time and perhaps the only time that it is explicitly said that God himself will fill someone with his spirit, it's, it's not Moses, it's not Abraham, it's not David, but it's someone whose name you may not have even heard of before today. Think about that for a moment. The first person that God fills with his spirit, the same spirit that created the heavens and the earth, was so that the construction that was necessary for worship might be accomplished. It highlights the importance of worship, certainly, but it also highlights the importance of artistry in that worship. It tells me that God not only cares that we bring a soft heart that is ready for worship, but that God also cares about what the worship space looks like and how we furnish that space. God cares so much about that that he filled someone with his spirit to get it right. It seems to me that we need to encourage more artistic expressions of faith. I know that as, as Presbyterians, we're very heavy, uh, uh, heavily a verbal people in our expressions of faith. But just as we want to encourage and exercise our other spiritual gifts, we wanna make sure that this spiritual gift of artistry is also used in our worship of God. So I want to encourage all of you artists, you musicians, you creatives, to exercise your spiritual gifts of artistry in the worship of God. All of you, you know, I know, are just amazed each week. Like whenever I see Pastor Dohi come up with these creative ideas, of communicating the gospel with the, with the armor that she's been making and stuff. I mean, it's just, right? That's a spiritual gift. And so I want to encourage all of you who come up with, you know, activities and crafts for our children, the liturgists who, who changed even the, the font on our templates for our slideshow, the media team who's, you know, with the cameras zooming in and out. Um, I want you to know that all of this are these, these efforts at artistry, it's a blessing and it's needed in our worship of God. And I hope that all of you continue to try to, to explore and find expression for those gifts. Don't let the, the TikTok dancers and influencers be the only one coming up with new stuff. That leads me to a second related reflection, and that is this. I think that the reason God in, endows us with these artistic abilities, these gifts. It's not simply to help us worship, but I think it's because God is fundamentally concerned about beauty. I think God is fundamentally concerned about beauty. In the beginning, after each day of creation, God looked at what he had made and he declared it good. He declared it good. It wasn't just some, you know, slipshod thing that he just sort of put together. 
but he created the world in such a way that it was good. It's not a stretch to substitute or to translate the word good with beautiful. So for example, we could read Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was beautiful. Ecclesiastes 3 also teaches us that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And the psalmist declares in Psalm 96, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. A little earlier in Exodus 28, God commanded this, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. God filled garment makers with, spirit, with a spirit of skill so that they could create what the priests wore, that it might reflect glory and beauty. That's why I wear a suit every Sunday to church. I mean, this is a practically a plug for the fashion industry to create works of glory and beauty. God wants every detail in worship to point to his glory and beauty. Glory and beauty are the twin goals here of the spiritual gift that has been given to Bezalel for his artistic construction of the tabernacle and all of its related items. Just as God created the heavens and the earth and all of its glory and beauty, so we too, in imitation, have the gifting and the longing to create works of beauty that echo God's creation especially as it relates to worship. Now, Presbyterians, as you know, we are not really known for our appreciation of beauty. We lean towards simplicity and functionality and practicality. We are known for destroying stained glass windows. We are known for preferring plain white-walled chapels over ornate cathedrals. We're known for wearing sensible shoes rather than for our Hulk couture. But we were created to appreciate beauty. In fact, I think this, this longing for beauty is a sign that has been built into us of our longing for God. It may not seem like it, but isn't this why we plant rose bushes and tulips in our yard rather than just carrots and potatoes? For whatever reason, we as a country, maybe as a world, we've decided that roses are more beautiful than carrots. That's why when I was, um, when I was dating my wife, um, I didn't know a lot of things, but I would bring her roses and not carrots. Even though, practically speaking, carrots are more useful, right? Isn't this why you decorate your homes with, with pictures and photos on your walls? Isn't this why you fill your shelves with beautiful knickknacks? Isn't this why you shop?
for different clothes and different styles instead of wearing the same thing every day. We may disagree about what is beautiful, but that we are seeking to surround ourselves with beauty. I mean, we share that longing. That's why this space too, I mean, these banners, right? These works of art, it's to help us to enter into a space of beauty. My sermon title today is Beauty Will Save the World. Beauty Will Save the World. It comes from one of Dostoevsky's lesser known novels, although it's memorably entitled The Idiot. It's probably the most quoted line from that novel, but it's one that is almost always taken out of context. Some have used it, for example, to argue that art, the appreciation of art, the beauty of art, the eternal truths as revealed through art can appeal to the better part of our humanity and that such appreciation can lead us to unity and the binding and the healing of wounds. For example, another Russian author, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, during his Nobel Prize lecture quoted and commented on this phrase to defend the need and the importance of art. In contrast to political speeches, journalism, and political systems, which he said could all be constructed on an error or on a lie, he argued, quote, the persuasiveness of a true work of art is completely irrefutable. It prevails even over a resisting heart, end quote. I think his notions are a bit too idealistic, but there is a lot of truth in his perspective. Works of art, especially those that have stood the test of time, a Rembrandt painting, a Beethoven symphony, they can speak a kind of truth that can move us in ways that an essay or a sermon cannot. But this is not what Dostoevsky had in mind. The quote, beauty will save the world, comes near the end of the novel and is spoken by a nihilist, a young man dying of tuberculosis, and it's part of an accusation that he makes against the main character, Prince Mushkin. Prince Mushkin is called the idiot because his goodness and sincerity and innocence makes him look like an idiot in the world of intrigue and politics and all the pettiness of human living. And here's the quote in context. Is it true, Prince, that you once said that the world would be saved by beauty? Gentlemen, he shouted in a loud voice to all the company, the Prince says that the world will be saved by beauty. And I maintain that the reason he has such playful ideas is that he is in love. Gentlemen, the prince is in love. I could see that as soon as he came into the room. Don't blush, prince, or I shall be sorry for you. What sort of beauty will save the world? His accuser erroneously believed that he was in romantic love and that the beauty that he was referencing is the beauty of the woman that he was supposedly in love with. But that is not the case at all. And in fact, his final question hints at this uncertainty. What sort of beauty will save the world? What sort of beauty will save the world? 
the novel reveals, and as Dostoevsky himself strongly believed, the beauty that will save the world is not a thing, but a who. It's the beauty of Christ. The beauty of Christ's broken body given in loving sacrifice. Both Prince Mushkin and for Dostoevsky, the beauty that will save the world is simply Jesus Christ. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer, said that in giving thanks to God for the good things that he gives us, the good things that we enjoy, our minds are led from thanks for that gift to the adoration of the giver. He writes, gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Adoration says, what must be the character of that being whose far off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. That's what beauty can do for us. The beauty of the sunbeam leads our eyes up to the sun and the beauty of the sun that made that sunbeam possible. The beauty of a sunset, the beauty of a song, the beauty of a grand slam at the bottom of the ninth leads us or can lead us from thanksgiving to adoration, from the enjoyment of that moment to the enjoyment of the eternal one who made that appreciation of that moment possible. So it's not the beautiful things all around us that will save me or the world, but the beauty that I can appreciate now points me to the creator who can and did save the world. The longing and the appreciation for beauty, for goodness, for excellence. These are signs of the longing for the beauty of the Creator who made that possible. I hope that longing that you have, that you feel, will drive you as the psalmist prayed. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to what? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's the desire. All these momentary beauties, they point us so that for all of eternity, we might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord because his sanctuary will be filled with glory and with power and with beauty. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the artists in our lives, for their gifting, for the beauty they introduce to us, especially when it comes to worship. We thank you, God, for the beauty that you have created in nature. And we thank you for all the beauty that you enable human hands to make. Let our enjoyment, our appreciation of that beauty, lead us
back to you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.